Good late afternoon, everybody. Thank you for attending the last session on day one of Pain Week. How's, uh, how's day one been for everybody? Good feedback. All right. Thank you. Um, if you haven't heard me say it already, we have a couple housekeeping items. If you would, please silence your mobile devices out of respect for your peers and also for our speaker. And then also, if you have not yet, please download the Pain Week app. We are looking for all feedback on the event and each session. So with that said, this is course code BHV06 being held hostage using psychological strategies for resolving difficult pain behaviors. And our distinguished speaker, second time I get to, to work with him today is Dr. David Cosio. And he is a psychologist at the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Division of Pain Medicine, and also at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center Anesthesiology Pain Clinic in Chicago, Illinois. Please help me welcome Dr. Cosio. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> I knew there was a problem when everybody just kind of looked at me, right? Uh, my name is David Cosio, and I am a board-certified clinical health psychologist, and I'm here to talk to you about being held hostage using psychological strategies for resolving difficult patient behaviors. A little bit about myself, uh, if you haven't met me yet. Uh, I'm the psychologist in the outpatient pain clinic at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center. This is a multidisciplinary team. Uh, which means that we meet with patients individually. But then I also am the psychologist in the integrated 12-week CARF-accredited uh, pain program at Jesse Brown, which is an integrated team, and that's when we all meet together with the patients, and uh, the patient is part of the team. Uh, that having been said, I am not here on behalf of the VA. I am not speaking on behalf of the VA. I'm here uh, just sharing some experiences and, and hopefully some wisdom that you can use in your practice. So there are some learning objectives that we have today. We're gonna recognize that frontline practitioners are involved in crisis situations and that providers will learn about the negotiation skills used in real life crises that in fact the FBI use. And then providers will gain insights on how to use psychology in the negotiation process. So I've been asked several times already today why I'm talking about this. And there's three reasons. So let me share those reasons for you. The first is I was here last year at Pain Week, and one of the things that came up in one of the talks that I was in was several providers were talking about being held hostage uh, by their patients, feeling as though they, they were stuck. They, the patients weren't letting them have any breathing room to kind of move around and try to different things. Uh, so that kind of got the wheels running. Uh, that, that's what I love about Pain Week, is that I come here and the wheels get a little bit of grease and start running a little better, right? That was where the first idea came from. The second idea came from, uh, during this past year, uh, I found out that there was a, ph a physician, a pain physician in Indiana who was killed uh, by a, not the patient, by the spouse of the patient, um, which kind of raised some red flags and anxiety in the pain clinic, right? Uh, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about that. And then the third uh, reason is because I, have been held hostage by a patient, even as a psychologist. So I'll tell you a little bit about the case and then we'll go ahead and get started. We had a young man who came in this year who was starting to cause a lot of anxiety with, throughout the entire hospital. 
through the administration, through different clinics, because he was having a lot of abdominal pain. They had done an extensive amount of tr treatment, um, MRIs and CT scans, and used every tool they could possibly use to look at this case to see if there was any evidence of anything that could be causing the pain, and they just couldn't find anything. And so he was referred to the pain clinic, and we were given a heads up about the patient coming in. We read over his chart, we looked at his history, we tried to get as much information as we could because we understood that this was going to be a very difficult case. And I don't know if she's here, but the clinical director that I work with, uh, she may not be here. Uh, she actually sat in with the patient with me, and this was a, a team effort. This was a true interdisciplinary team effort where we both sat in with the patient and tried to do an evaluation and figure out how we could help in this case. What was interesting about this case is that we used the tools that I'm going to talk to you about. We spent two hours with this patient, which usually is not the case. That's not how long we use. And it didn't matter what we did and what strategy we used, he just wasn't leaving. We felt like a hostage in that room. Uh, and so what benefit we had from it is that after we spent the two hours, we still had the same treatment plan we had came in initially, but what was different is that the patient felt understood and ever since then, he hasn't come back to the pain clinic because he realizes what we have to offer and what it is that we're going to do for him. And we're just not the right place for him. What had happened is, is what we didn't know from reading the chart and after listening to this guy for two hours was that he had had some surgery done several years ago. And then after the surgery, continued to have abdominal pain. And he kept telling physicians, something is wrong, something is wrong, and nobody was listening. Finally, someone listened. I don't know who, who, who actually listened to him, and they went in and found that they had left some gauze that was causing some of the pain. Now the patient is now very hyper-focused on his pain, right? And it doesn't feel like something is functioning right. And so he feels like they need to go back in because something else must have been left behind. Pain clinic is not going to help him do that. We're not the right place. But what we did offer him was a space to share that concern. We listened to him and then therefore got him connected with the right clinic, got him connected with administration, and then they have since uh, looked into the situation. All right, so in an ideal world, right, what we expect from patients is that they're going to be open, that they're going to be honest, obedient, they're going to be motivated to get better, they're going to display gratitude, and they're going to display pleasure at improvement, right? And in an ideal world, we are expected to be thoughtful, to listen, to be empathic, to be non-judgmental, to do no harm, and to be competent. But this is in an ideal world. This is what we strive for, and this is not actually the reality. By a show of hands, how many of you, if you're in here, I'm assuming, you have might have felt being held hostage before. So at a show of hands, how many of you have had a physical altercation with a patient? Raise your hand. Several, right? So you're not alone. How many of you have had a verbal altercation? With, okay, that's everybody, right? And how many of you have felt like you can't get out of the room quick enough? Okay, that's everyone, right? So this idea of being held hostage is not a 
unique thing. This is pretty common. What I think that is not common is that we don't talk about it. And when it happens, there's almost a little bit of shame or discomfort that comes with it, right? So I'm going to kind of take away some of that and tell you that as you can see, it is a common occurrence, right? Now, when it happened to me, it has happened to me several times, what I did is I went into the research to see if it was me, if this was something that was just happening to me, or if there were other people out there. Uh, there is evidence to show that frontline pro pro uh, providers are, going at, are at high risk for patient-perpetuated violence. Um, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics found that uh, when it comes to healthcare and social service industries, they have a lot of violent acts that occur. So this was not in the pain clinic. Um, this is when I worked in the Department of Corrections in Louisiana as a psychologist. Um, I was running a group for um, uh, inmates who were in there for sexual crimes. And when working with sexual offenders, one of the things that we do is we have them admit that they have made a sexual violent act because that's part of the process is to admit that they've done it and then try to identify the risk factors that, that lead to them behaving in that way. Well, I had a new patient come into a group. There were about eight inmates. Uh, these are not, you know, low security. This is maximum security patients in a room by myself with the police officer outside the room. And I had called out one patient and I asked him to take, you know, take uh, onus of what he had done. And in a matter of seconds, he jumped up from his chair and almost got me. But I had a relationship with the group, and two of the other group members got in front of him and luckily saved my life. I might not have been here today had he gotten a handhold of me. Um, that was a physical, uh, the potential of a physical altercation, and I was serving in, the, in, in a social service um, uh, capacity. This was not in a pain clinic. In one decade, about 30 physicians in the U.S. were victims of a work-related homicide. I already shared with you that one happened last year in Indiana, just across the, the lake from me. And then one study found that 63% of physicians who were queried actually indicated that, that they had experienced physical abuse, but about 11% uh, had reported verbal abuse. Now, in this population, it looks like you guys had the opposite. There were less of you who, thank God, had a physical altercation, and a lot more of you who have had some verbal abuse. <coughs> Why? Why are we in crisis? Well, the most common reasons is that, you know, there are certain behaviors that put you at risk. Um, Drug-seeking behaviors or when we confront those kinds of issues are going to put you at risk. If a patient's waiting a long time in the physician's office, how many times I've heard that? I've been waiting for 30 minutes! What are you guys doing back here? I've heard that a couple of times, right? They're already coming in, they're already coming in lock and loaded, right? Um, dissatisfaction or displeasure with care or outcomes, you know, their relationship with religion or God, they're questioning those things. Or the physician refuses to endorse a report of disability or refuses to fill out any kind of disability form. That's when we typically see patients kind of get angry. There are other risk factors that are consistently associated with violence. This is by the American Psychiatric Association. That includes a history of opioid abuse, poor impulse control, past antisocial contact, and past violence. Now, many frontline practitioners have said that they feel like they've been held hostage. 
Um, and like we showed in this room, this, this is not any different. And a lot can be learned from looking at hostage negotiation uh, situations that are used by the FBI. Um, why is because there's a 95% success rate when these strategies are used in those situations. Um, I was shocked when I saw that statistic. And so I'm going to show you a very short negotiation clip. This is not actually from the FBI because I couldn't find those. Those are very hard to get. Um, so this is from a, a TV show called Flashpoint. Never seen it in my entire life. Anybody seen Flashpoint before? Oh, a few fans. All right. Uh, so you might know this. This is just a one-minute clip. Uh, this is an FBI uh, training uh, where they are running the training with new people and trying to uh, coach them on how to negotiate with a uh, terrorist. Um, let me just warn you that there is one bad word. Um, I'm so sorry if you're sensitive. Uh, just close your ears at the end. All right? So this is the clip from Flashpoint. You sound very upset. You're damn straight I am. Look, I hear what you're saying, okay? Stay in control. This is your negotiation. What do we need to do so that we can all go home? You can give me what I want. I'd like to try. You know what I'd really like? I'd like some coke. You How about that? Huh? You give me an ounce? This is over. Hello? I'm gonna do it. Hello? Little help Hello? here. Hello? Hello? You hear me what you're not doing nothing about? He's a lying pig! I'm not a liar. Don't argue. Just get him back. Okay, look. You're obviously very upset. Yes, yes. You know what that means? You know, I really wish to call up and negotiate us to safety. Come on, Sam. Just talk to them. Dude, you know what I want! I'm not giving you cocaine, jackass! Bang, bang. Jackass? Did he say jackass? Okay, Sam. Let's talk this through. Just give me a minute, Sarge. So an example of a high-stress situation, right? What did he do well? First of all, did he do anything well? He started off by saying, you know, I, I'm trying to listen to you. I'm trying to, 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 to help you out, right? That was a good start. But then once the patient, uh, not the patient, once the person asked for cocaine, it went downhill, right? He didn't know what to do at that point. He didn't, get it. he didn't get any information. He didn't really know. Right. He may not have the cocaine to give him, right? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, or if I can get this to work. All right. Let me go over here. Um, I'm going to show you the actual behavior or change model that is used from, for, for FBI training. Um, now, when looking at a hostage situation, there are three things. There's the hostage taker, which in a pain clinic would be the patient, right? Uh, the patient that is asking you for something. There's also a target of the hostage taker, which is usually a hostage. You are not the hostage. It's actually the thing that they're trying to get uh, or the person that they're trying to get it from. Uh, and then finally, the hostage is the bargaining chip. So it's your time, it's a complaint, it can also be a dissatisfaction score. 
There's also distinct phases of the negotiation process. So there's an initial phase, and this begins at times with anger and with volatility, uh, and it usually ends with the hostage taker making the demands, right? That's give me my cocaine, right? Negotiation phase is the standoff, uh, and this is where the relationship starts to develop. And then there's a termination phase. This is usually brief um, and sometimes volatile because the patient's not getting or the person's not getting what they want. And it results with the patient giving up, the provider giving up, they're both giving up, somebody's being terminated, somebody's being discharged from the clinic. And then the fourth is the post-incident phase, which is the effects that play out after this incident. Right, so that could be a dissatisfaction score that you get from customer service, the customer surveys that come in. It could be, you know, unfortunately, the situation for that doctor in Indiana. Somebody could come in and cause some violence. Um, it could also cause a shift in the relationship, a rupture in the relationship, and that's usually hard to repair. So hostage negotiations have a lot of psychology. There's a lot of skills that you as the negotiator can use that you can inherently have that are going to help you in these situations. And again, the goal is to work with the person in crisis. Well, this person who's showing up is in crisis. They're in pain. They are hurting. They need help. Uh, and so they need a couple of things from you besides the thing that they're demanding. Uh, so it entails influence of behavioral change in someone in order to gain a voluntary compliance. It's a unifying factor in that the person's actions are being dictated by their emotions and they're not rationally thinking in the moment. So the first thing you need to do is address the emotions that are present in, in front of you. Um, and so that is your job as the negotiator. And again, we're gonna show you a behavior change stairway model that's used by the FBI and the International Hostage Negotiation Units. So this is this change model. What's interesting about this model is that nothing that is on the screen should shock you. Right? So we start off with active listening, then building empathy, rapport, influence, and behavioral change. But the thing that people don't often talk about is that this takes time. Right? What oftentimes happens is because we're short in the amount of time that we have, what we do is we jump to the influence right away without doing these first three steps first. Right? So I want to go over each step real quickly. I know you guys are you know, hungry and you want to go eat dinner, so I'll try to get you out of here as soon as I can. All right? Let's go to the first one, active listening. So what is active listening not? Active listening is not any of these things. However, when you look at your own practice, when I look at my practice, I engage in some of these activities. You know, I, you know, may, you know, warn patients about the dangers of opioids. I might give advice. I might, you know, agree or approve or praise. That's not what active listening is. Active listening, um, what it does is that it demonstrates empathy, but it also demonstrates that you support that person. It reduces the negative emotions that that person is walking in with, and it also includes a different set of skills. So there's a five skills that are involved in active listening that includes using open-ended questions, emotional labeling, mirroring and reflecting, silence and paraphrasing. So open-ended questions, pretty easy. People know this, right? So closed-ended questions oftentimes can be answered with a yes or no or short answer. Open-ended questions actually help the conversation move along. So if I say, are you upset? The answer is, yes or no. That doesn't move us along. But if I say, how are you feeling? Or what is happening at this moment? Then the person is forced to engage and give you more information than just one answer. Um, <coughs> emotionally labeling. You know, what is the person presenting with? So when the patient shows up and they say, I'm pissed off because I've been waiting 30 minutes in the waiting room, 
is to acknowledge you are upset. You are angry. Tell me what's going on. What happened? Because if you don't diffuse the situation right away, not only is that person going to boil over, it's going to get worse, but you're not going to get anything done, right? And so sometimes the best thing to do is to put everything down and to look at your patient and say, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's happening. Because once the emotional uh, part diffuses, then you'll be able to talk to a more rational person and be able to come to an agreement. So these are signs of anger, right? The most obvious being if they have a short temper, like I just showed you, or if they're yelling at you or slamming things, or you know, they're obsessing about something. If somebody comes in and they're just keep talking about something that happened a week ago, um, if they have a negative affect, if, if, if it's affecting their physical health, and it, of course it increases pain. How do we know that the anger is going to move into a more violent situation, that it potentially can become uh, a behavior? It's when you see these kinds of things occurring, right? So are they demanding? Are they making demands? Are they irritable? Are their nostrils flared, right? I can't show you that. I can't do that with my nostrils. Are they boisterous? Are they clenching their feet, uh, uh, fist? Are they talking at you loud? Are they yelling? Um, are they making thrust? Are they abusive or using profane language? Uh, that's not unusual for me, so that's not one. Uh, pacing, are they pacing back and forth in the room? Are they gesticulating? Are they kind of you know, doing this kind of thing? Are they attacking on objects? Those are all indications that they might become more violent. You also may want to be using mirroring or reflecting, and there's different types of reflections that you can use. The, probably the easiest is a simple reflection, and that's when you stay very close to what the patient said. This is when you parrot what the patient said. So if the patient said, I'm frustrated because I've been waiting in the waiting room for 30 minutes, what you would say is, you're frustrated because you've been waiting in the waiting room for 30 minutes. It's really just as simple as that, right? There, you kind of can go a little bit further than that, right? So you can paraphrase. That means you go along well beyond what the patient said and present information in a new light. Seems as though you're frustrated because you've been waiting in the rating room because you might be afraid that this is going to cut into your time. See how I took it a little further, right? Then affective, that addresses the emotion either expressed or impl implied. So the patient said that they were frustrated, but I may take it a little further. I may say, you're angry, right? Don't be afraid to take it a little further because people will correct you if they think you're wrong, right? So I'm not angry. All right. What is this then? What's going on right now? This is a little bit more than frustration, but maybe not anger. Where are you? What's going on? Talk to me, right? Um, the talking is the thing that you want to get them to do. Amplified is pushing on an absolute statement by the person. Double signing is acknowledging both sides. At one minute, I'm hearing you say that you're frustrated and that you want to be seen right away. But do you recognize, on the other hand, that this is now taking away from our time together? showing them both sides. And then sometimes you can use things like metaphors or stories to kind of uh, underline the, the point that you're trying to make. Silence is golden. So I found a golden lady for you. <laughs> One thing that I've heard here coming to Pain Week for years is God gave us two ears and one mouth because she wanted us to hear twice as much, right? You notice I said she, right? Um, Again, sometimes you do the most by not doing anything at all, just by being, keeping yourself quiet and listening. Paraphrasing is another way of saying summaries. Summaries are very helpful because what they do is that they indicate to the patient that you've been listening, 
but also that it communicates interest, understanding, and it calls attention to important elements of discussion. Um, and it might shift the attentions from directly being about getting the cocaine in the, in, the, in the clip to actively finding out what's behind that. What is actually the concern? Um, and it might ha highlight where the patient might be in their readiness to change. Don't worry, I'm not going to go into detail about readiness to change. We're going to move on to empathy, which is the second step. So there is a video that I'm going to show, but before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about what emp uh, empathy is. Empathy is not, I had what you've had, so I know what you're going through. That is not empathy. That is not everyone at the same time. It's Sympathy, correct. It is not, my grandmother had that, so I understand what you should do. So what you should do is this, 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 because it worked for her. That is also not sympathy. Empathy is looking through the world, through your patient's eyes. So let me give you an example of how it's helped me. You know, when I first started working at the VA 10 years ago when I was a baby psychologist, you know, I would be prepared. I'd come in, I'd you know, prepare my treatments, and the patients wouldn't show up. And I would get very personal, I would take it very personal, and I would get very frustrated. And it wasn't until I started realizing what patients have to go through in order to see me. So in Chicago, we use public transit. I live in Chicago. I also use public transit. How, do I, know, how, how I know this is an issue is because I'm never on time at work. You can ask my boss. She's sitting right there. Um, and the reason is, is because something will go wrong at any point. So I have to walk from my house to the nearest bus station, take that bus to the nearest train station, take that train to the nearest station to the hospital, and then walk a mile from that train station to my hospital, walk three buildings to the fifth floor. And then the patient has to probably talk to three people before they talk to me. That is a lot to go, there's a lot that can go wrong there, right? But it wasn't until I kind of took that journey and saw that journey through my patient's eyes where I started realizing that it may have nothing to do with me, which usually is the case. Um, and it probably is that something happened along the way. Because again, I'm never on time. Um, it's also looking at things with no judgment. It's also trying to understand another person's feelings. You know, this is hard. You know, it's hard to ask someone to try to understand another individual's feelings because in some cases, we may not understand how we're feeling ourselves. Let's look at anger. When somebody says they're angry, it actually could be something else, especially among men. I work with men mostly, and that's where I see it the most, is men will say they're angry. But then when I talk to them and I try to get more information, what I find out is that they're depressed or they're grieving or they feel guilty, or they feel shame. And it's not about anger at all. And so I could sit there and teach them a bunch of anger management techniques, but that's not gonna help them because that's not really what's going on, right? Which is why the act of listening is so important. And you wanna communicate understanding. Now, there is a uh, researcher by the name of Brene Brown. I'm sure how many of you have heard of her before? So she's fantastic and she actually talks about what empathy is, and so I'm gonna let her uh, describe it to you because she has a really cute video to show you. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy. Empathy 
fuels connection, sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? <laughs> um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So I couldn't have put it any better than that. I really am not that eloquent, right? So I figured a video was better. Um, again, it's the connection, making, uh, making connections with the people that we work with that have the most power. You know, uh, it's happened to me several times, unfortunately, in the last year where someone has lost someone very close to them. And oftentimes the way that we deal with it is that we say condolences and then we kind of stay away from the person because what we want to do is we want to give them space, right? But what really is happening is, is that we don't know what to do. And so oftentimes, like the video said, is what the best thing to do is to say, I, I don't know what to do, but I, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm here for you for whatever you need me for. And again, that's underlining the importance of the connection. Now that's empathy, let's go to rapport, which is this third step. So empathy is what you feel. Rapport is when they feel it back to you, right? It involves getting the person your attention. It's being positive. It's using communication. Um, ensuring your verbal communication is in line with your nonverbal communication. If I'm telling you that I'm listening to you and at the same time I'm looking at my watch or I'm looking at the computer, what is my body language saying and what, what is my language saying? Body language actually speaks a lot louder than what you're saying, right? Kind of works the other way around too. If a patient says, yeah, I understand what you're saying and they keep looking at the clock at the wall, I know that they're not really understanding or listening to what I'm saying. So it goes both ways. And once you build rapport, then that's when patients start to trust you. 
Fourth stage is influence. So this is when you're trying to resolve the crisis at hand and you have a goal and you don't want to lose sight of it. Uh, you hope to influence behavior in a positive way and you want to rec recommend a course of action. So let's talk about changing the conversation. This is one way you can influence. So they asked me to prepare three cases to underline this. So the first case, a patient requests oxycodone for chronic low back pain. What we typically hear providers say is something like this. The law or policy says I cannot prescribe Oxycontin anymore, so we're going to need to find something else, right? How many of you heard somebody else saying this? You wouldn't say that, but somebody else, right? <laughs> right. Now, what's a better way of saying this that shows some of the things that we talked about? Well, what if you said we have new information showing that opioids are not the best treatment for back pain. May I talk to you about treatments that we have that may have work better for you? So what you're acknowledging is, is that you're in an agreement with the policy, you're in agreement with the law, and that you really want to offer them other options, right? You're trying to influence them to do something different. Now, how, why, what kinds of things can you keep in mind that could be helpful for your patients are not only the pharmacology, but the interventions, the rehab, the psychological, and the complementary and integrative health modalities. I talked about that this morning, if you were in the Emperor Has New Clothes talk. We talked about uh, how all these have research to support their use in pain management, and that one really doesn't show that it's any better than the other. But we also have to keep in mind the common factors, the things that are common between all these treatments, which are you, the patient, the relationship you have with your patient, and the expectations that you have for each other. Right? Case number two. Patient is on Norco for three years, and then the patient requests a higher dose. Typically what I hear is, I know you have pain, but I can't give you any more NOCO. Really, we should not be using it at all. I'm going to reduce your monthly supply in half this month, <laughs> right? This is what I usually hear. What a better way of saying it is, may I talk to you about other treatments that might work better for your pain and are safer in the long run, right? You're communicating that you understand their concerns, but that you're going to offer them something different. Let's do the last one. Case number three, patient described more, uh, patients prescribed morphine for eight years and ask why he has such a dangerous drug after he hears on the news after the high rates of the over, uh, overdose deaths, of opiate overdoses. Typically what I hear is the morphine was prescribed by somebody else. I didn't do it. I never thought it was good for you. Um, I'm not sure how to taper you off, so I'm going to refer you to the pain clinic. Actually, I hear this a lot. Right? What we want to hear instead, or what you want to say instead is, yes, there is a concern. I have a concern also. I'm worried as well. Um, we realize opioids are not the best option, and you know, treatments change over time. Something that was good before may not be good anymore. Uh, and so how does that, you know, why don't we talk about other options for pain management? How does that sound to you? What you're doing again is, yeah, you're not simply rejecting. You're not saying, no, I'm not giving you no opiates. What you're saying is, no, I'm not giving you any opiates, but I'm going to redirect them to the things that are safer, right? Because that's our goal is to provide pain management that is safer for the patient and for the community at large. You also want to use other tools in that case, right? So you want to use tools that are going to help you uh, in that process. So pain education, if you, if you have a pain education school, you can offer that to the patient. Random urine tox screens, prescription drug monitoring, opioid risk tools, and using decision trees. You guys are going to hear this all week, so I'm not going to go into detail about them. 
Let's go to the behavioral change, which is the last step. You know, this is when the, make the person part of the decision-making process. You know, oftentimes what I hear providers say is, is what you're going to do is you're going to do physical therapy and you're going to take this medicine three times a day and then you're going to come back next month. And what oftentimes what you don't realize is when the patient's sitting there, they may be nodding, but the person inside their head is saying, no, I'm not. I ain't doing any of that. That's what we call the rebellious teenager, right? It, it, we can't help it. You do it, right? When somebody says something that you're going to do, you hear it. It says, no, I ain't going to do that. It's the first thing that happens in your head. That's a rebellious teenager that's still there. What you want to do instead is get the patient involved in the decision-making process. Look, there's no research to show that one is any better than the other. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. What are you willing to do? What is it, what captures your interests? What is something that you're willing to try and stick with? Because if they choose it, they're more likely to do it. And if they're more likely to do it, and the more likely they stick with it, the more likely it will work. The reason why these treatments don't work is because somebody gives it a one or two days, it doesn't work, and so they push it away and they look for the next thing, right? Because everybody's looking for the magic pill. Again, you have to give a little to get a little, right? This is why it's called negotiation. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to get complete control. You're still in control of the situation. You also need to be consistent in your message. You know, oftentimes if you're in a clinic and there's 10 providers and there's one provider who's saying something different, there's a problem, right? Everybody in the clinic must be saying the exact same thing. So no matter who says it, everybody's gonna give you the same answer. And that goes from the person that checks in the patient to the nurse, to the provider, to the psychologist, to whoever else that person sees. Everyone must have a consistent message because if you don't do that, then that destroys this whole process. Um, you wanna keep control of your emotions. I know that's very hard. I'm a very emotional person um, and it's hard not to get agitated, but when someone is yelling at you, Right? There's this that occurs, right? And so you got to keep your cool. And so I'm going to give you a tactic you can use. When somebody goes louder, you go softer. Right? And so what I'll say is, this, sir, I can't hear you if you're yelling at me. And what they'll say is, what? And I'll say, sir, I can't hear you when you are yelling at me. And they'll go, what? What you'll notice is that they start going down, right? You're diffusing that emotional discharge that is occurring, right? You're trying to address that. And then again, you want, they act on your suggestions. Make a deal. Now, the thing that we don't look at is time. These things take time. Time is your greatest ally. Uh, it's about slowing things down. In the case that I shared with you about the patient with the abdominal pain that you and I sat for two hours with him, yeah, we took two hours with this patient, but it was because we took the time and because we listened to him and we found out what exactly his concerns were that we were able to say, this is not something that we're able to do for you. These are the other places that you need to go for what your concerns are. But if we just kind of went by his report and went by how he was presenting, it would have been a different story, right? Uh, slowing things down, take one step at a time. Uh, uh, and remember, what you're trying to do is get voluntary compliance by the patient. Uh, if you rush this process, you're going to kind of uh, add on to the negative emotions. Patients have rights. You have rights, first of all. Let me say that out loud. You have rights. I don't know if anybody else is going to say that this week, but I will say that. Everyone in here has a right. You have a right to your safety, 
That is number one, because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be available to take care of the next person. You know, when I fly on the airplane uh, every other week, I laugh every time they do that thing. You know, make sure you put on your mask first before you put the mask on to somebody else, right? It's the same idea. You need to make sure that you keep yourself safe. Uh, and so whatever you need to do to you keep yourself safe, do it. Um, patients have a right to say no. If you offer them something and they say no, they have a right to say no. But it also means that you have a right to say no as well. You are not obligated to provide opiates. You are obligated to provide the best clinical care. And what is the best clinical care? Is when you maximize safety and minimize risk for the patient and the community. And it also is engaging the patient in shared medical decision making and reducing those emotions, right? Don't make decisions based on emotions, base them on facts. That is what's going to protect you, right? So if a patient comes in and you decide, I'm not going to do this, typically what happens then is the patient will give you a sob story, right? We all have a sad story. But then what I've seen providers do is that, that they'll change their mind once they hear that story, and that's the worst thing that you can do because now you're making a decision based on emotion and not based on fact. The way that you make it based on fact is by using the tools that are available to you. If you liked what I had to say today, like me on Twitter or like me on Facebook. Also, I'm a first-time author, so if you have patients that need kind of communication training or if you need communication training, this is actually covered in my book. It's a cheap buy. It's only 15 bucks, so you can, you can buy it. A good resource for your patients. Otherwise, thank you, everybody, for sticking out with me.